weeks in Nehemiah. I think it was a good series. I think we got a lot out of it. Uh, we were doing the Bible study along with it on Wednesday nights and dug deeper into it. Uh, this week, or, or we're starting a new series. Uh, it's called The End of Me. What does it mean to die to yourself? You know, we've, we've heard that in Scripture a bit. In the New Testament, Jesus talks about that. And so that's, that's the series. It's going to be a four-week series. And then we'll take some time off of Thanksgiving or do a couple, a couple messages for uh, Veterans Day and, and Thanksgiving. And then we'll dig into uh, Vintage Christmas. That's what our series for the month of December will be. It will be Vintage Christmas. And we'll, uh, it's a great series. Uh, we'll get into that for five weeks. Um, and then it'll go, it'll go fast. So uh, there's, uh, this, this message is, is, like I said, it's the end of me. And it's about uh, the Beatitudes. In, in the Sermon on the Mount. That's where it's based off of. So I'm going to start the series with a question for you. The question is this. What would it take to make you happy? What would it take to make you happy? Think about it for a minute. What would it take? I'd take a new car, new job. You know, what, what would it take to make you happy? A, a new house, a little bigger house, a little smaller house, pay off some bills, what would it take to make you happy? So Psychology Today magazine that does a lot of, you know, it's uh, kind of like a journal, does a lot of research and stuff. They asked 52,000 people this question. 52,000 Americans. What would it take to make you happy? And this is some of the results. Some of the results were, you know, more friends and more of a social life. Some of them was having a good, time, a, a good job or, or being in love, you know, having a life partner of some sort, you know, a, a, a girlfriend, a wife a husband, uh, recognition and success, you know, moving up the, the ladder at your job or being, being recognized in the community for, for something, maybe something you do. Uh, or what about personal growth? Some of, you know, people talk about personal growth. If I had, you know, personal growth, I will be happy if I just grow personally. You know, I did some research on Amazon.com a few, uh, about a year ago, and I typed in, you know, self-help book stuff. And there was over 140,000 books categorized in self-help. 140,000. So personal growth, you know, personal growth is a big one. Uh, there's, what about good, you know, good financial situation, paying off some bills, things like, that. well, you know, if I pay out these bills, I'll be happy. If I could just pay off this little debt, you know, clear out my credit cards, then that burden will be that gone, and I'll be happy then. You know, nice home, nice apartment. There's a lot of, a lot of different ones. You know, there's a list, and I'm sure this is just a, a short part of the list. I'm sure there was lots more answers. You know, and of course, you know, there's well, being attractive or being beautiful. If I just looked like those people in the magazines, I'd be happy. That's why we have plastic surgeons all around the world making millions of dollars on, on folks making little adjustments, a nose job, an ear job, all these different things. If I could just look a little better, I'd be happy. And then we have people that, oh, if I, would just, if I could just get married. If I could just get married and have kids. I would have a husband that loved me and I'd feel valuable. If I have kids, then, then they'll love me and I'll feel important. I'll be happy then. And then they get the kids and they realize they want to pull their hair out after the first couple years, you know, when they get to the, the terrific twos. Not the terrible twos, the terrific twos. It's not quite the same. It's interesting about this survey is that, that most of it attempts to find happiness in external situations. External, they're all external things. They're not internal things. They're not finding happiness from, from inter, inside. It's all outside stuff. There's this popular idea in our culture today that, that if the circumstances are right, I'll be happy. They call this the, the when-then uh, uh, thinking. When I get that job, then I'll be happy. Or when I, when I get married, then I will be happy. When, when, when I win the lottery, I will be happy. We do this, uh, our culture has taught us that happiness is based on circumstances and based on our, on our situations. We need to achieve certain things or do certain things to, in order to be happy. We have to do certain things and, and achieve certain levels to be pleasing to God. And, and uh, you know, I'll come to church. I, I witnessed to somebody one time and they said, no, I won't go to church. I've got to clean my life up first. That makes, that's, that's totally not even what Scripture says. But we have this mentality that I'll clean up my life first, then I'll get right with God. Or we need to achieve things to, 
to be accepted in society. I have to have a nice house to be accepted, or, or I have to have nice clothes to be accepted. I have to shop at new stores instead of thrift stores to be accepted in society. We have, to, we have this uh, circumstance, this achievement mentality. We have to be a certain way to be accepted or pleasing to other people or pleasing to God. And we do this at church, don't we? We do this in church, too. Of course, not this church, but we, church as a whole, we do. We're taught that in church that we, we need to keep up appearances and, and we, have to, we have to be a certain way. I know we've moved away from that, but you know, if, I, if I wore jeans in the, in the pulpit, you know, some, some people will look at that and go, oh man, that guy's, that's a disgrace, that's horrible. They, we have to keep up certain appearances. We have to be a certain way. We have to come to church a certain amount of time to be considered worthy. I know I've done that. I know that, that I've done it where well, if I could preach a little better or if I, can, if I could be a better pastor in some way or not make any mistakes that as a pastor, I'd be accepted before God. I'd be a good preacher. I'd be, a, I'd be accepted. I've done it with school. If I could just get that extra degree, that, that extra education, if I can finish my seminary degree and, or, or get a doctorate degree in ministry, then I'd be accepted. Then I'd be considered acceptable pastor. I'd be, I'd be a, a good pastor. I can... I can go anywhere at any job. I'd be valued as a pastor. See, that we do that. I do it all the time. Well, not all the time, but I have done it. I know pastors that have done that. And you guys do it too, don't you? You do things similar. Maybe not the same situation, but, but you say things like, if I could read the Bible more, if I can get disciplined and read the Bible every single day, then I'd be happy. I'd be pleasing God. Or if I can... If I can if, if I could be at a church that worships God the way I like it, then I'd be happy. The music, the way I like it, then I'd be happy. Or, or a particular Bible study was taught a certain way, then I'd be happy. And we do it with, you know, or if I, like I serve in an area that I like, that I want, then I'd be happy. We do it all the time. Churches do it all the time. Uh, you know, if I'd pray more, I'd be happy. Sometimes we even blame others for our own unhappiness. We sit there and say, okay, you know what? If I, if I would just go to that church down the road that, that seems to be growing and they have a contemporary worship, then I'll be happy. It's this church or that church. And we blame the other church or the church that we're at and say, my happiness, I'm not happy because of them, because of the church. And what those people do is they bounce church to church. And, they're, and they look and they're, they're happy for a little while until they see some flaw or they see something, some performance. Some, they didn't meet the expectations and they, they go, oh, that church, and I'm out of here. I move on. It's the same thing. It's the same mentality. It's the circumstances. It's like if the circumstances are right, then I'll be happy. The Bible teaches us that happiness is not based on circumstance. It's based on attitude. Not based on circumstances. Our joy and our our happiness is not based on circumstances. It's based on here, the way we view things. It's about our attitude. If you study the ministry of Jesus, you'll find that he's consistently confronting common myths that the people were taught. He's constantly confronting things that the, that were common knowledge to the people of what they've been taught their whole life. The spiritual leaders taught that that they must that you must focus on the outside. You must perform certain rituals. You had to uh, follow the law. You had to do certain things in order to be pleasing to God. You had to be a certain way. You had to hold to the Sabbath. You know, the, there was in the Old Testament, there was some, some rules and some laws that, they, that God inst- instituted. But then the, the Jewish leaders, they added over 600 more. And there's all these rules that you had to follow. And if you followed them, then you're acceptable and pleasing in the eyes of the people and the eyes of God. And you, you basically had to have your act together in order to be pleasing to God. Now, we don't have that problem, right? We don't do that, right? Jesus consistently rebuked these myths and about God, about faith, about life, and how to live in the eyes of God. And he came and confronted these basic beliefs, these false beliefs about God and religion and faith that many people came to just accept. They just accepted it they just this is the way it is this is what we believe we have to be a certain way he basically said he basically said it like this i know you've been taught this i know you've been taught to follow all these rules i know you've been taught to do these things this way 
But I'm telling you that there's a new way to look at it. There's a new way to be. And that's what Jesus did consistently throughout his ministry. I know you've been taught this, but that's not what God wants. He wants this. And he was always rebuking these things and always pointing to the way of God and the right way of being. I know you were taught to keep up appearances and to follow a set of rules, but here's what God wants for you. And he was constantly turning things upside down, constantly challenging and debunking these myths. Jesus came along and turned things upside down. He taught that uh, about what, it's not about what's on the outside, it's what's on the inside. He taught about it being a heart issue, an internal issue. It's not about outside appearances. It's not about anything like that. It's about the inside. He taught a lot about brokenness. That's a big word in our message today, brokenness. I want you to remember that word, brokenness. He taught a lot about brokenness. Jesus, what Jesus taught is that he doesn't want all these external things. He doesn't want you to be worried about these external rituals. He doesn't want you to worry about those things. What he wants is a relationship. What he wants is for you to completely rely on him. Completely rely on him. He wants your complete brokenness before him. In this series, we'll be looking at what it means to be broken. Like I said, this title is, is The End of Me. And it's, and it's this idea in, in Matthew chapter 5, verse 3, this idea that, that when we're broken is really when life begins. When we're broken before God is where he really starts working the most. See, we don't hear that word brokenness in church very often. We don't hear about brokenness in life very often. You know, years ago, when, you, when something broke, you fixed it, right? But we live in what they call a throwaway culture now. If it breaks, instead of taking it down somewhere and fixing it, what do I do? I call Verizon and I ask them to send me a new one or I buy a new one. We don't really fix things anymore. We, and, and things are so common and we see things come into our lives, material things, that we just kind of, you know, if it breaks, we toss it. If, if, if a page rips my Bible, I go get a new one instead of taping it. I know guys that have had their Bibles for 30, 40, 50 years and they're tattered and just wore out. But now we, you know, if it gets a little worn out, we go get a new one. That's, the, that's what we have in this culture. It's because of all the products that we have in our cultures created this, this idea. And, and so when it's, something's broken, we have this tendency to throw things out, and we don't see the value in them. And we do this with material things, but we also do this with people. If, you see, if people are broken, we don't necessarily see the value in them. Not necessarily us, but people, uh, the society. Society says that. Society says, well, if you're broken, we, we don't need to worry about that. You know, if some people are thrown away because they're broken, because, they're, they're, because they have addictions and, and they have struggles and, they, and they're, they're, they have a drinking problem or a drug problem and we, we cast them aside in society and we say, you know what, they're, not, they're broken. We don't want to deal with that. Let's just lock them up or throw, you know, throw them in a rehab and, and we don't even want to pay for that anymore. People with mental health issues, struggling with depression and, and mental health disorders. You know, people, uh, it's still, even to the day, I, I, I'm an advocate for the mental health industry. And, and, if, and if somebody has struggles with something, let's, let's help. But there's so many people don't, people that have depression and mental health issues, they don't share that with people because of why? Because of the stigma that comes with it. Because people toss them away. You're broken. Oh, you have mental health issues? You're no valuable. You're not valuable. You're not interesting. You, you can't help because of this. And we treat people like that. We treat the poor and the uneducated the same way. We look at them as lesser. They, they have no value because they're poor or they're uneducated. See, God looks at people differently. God looks at people as the broken people that we're talking about. He looks at that, and he doesn't look at them as broken. He looks at them as beautiful. He looks at them as, as this beautiful work of art. And he looks at them with, with this... this amazement just love we're going to watch a quick video this is where this video is actually in two parts we're going to watch this introduction talk about this girl named uh, rachel and she started doing a ministry called uh, sacred hope and and she's going to kind of tell her story about when she when she started working with people this particular group and you'll learn what it is that's when she really realized how broken she was 
It's a great testimony. So we're going to start with the beginning, talk a little bit, and then a little bit later, we'll, we'll stop. she's going to sum it up a little bit. So take a look at this. I was driving down the highway beside the Theater X in Clarksville, and God just spoke to my spirit so clearly, and He said, I want you to go and bring my love and my hope to women in that place. I called my husband and said, God's called me to go to women in the sex industry to share the gospel with them. The first thing out of his mouth was, yes, that's what Jesus would do. I was totally taken back by it because I was expecting a completely different response. A lot of the dancers, when we first started serving a a meal, they would say, are you trying to poison us? Because they had never, ever experienced love, never experienced somebody who would do something for them without expecting something in return. Six months into starting at this club, serving week in and week out, ladies started coming to us saying, I'm being forced to do this. I just was raped last night. I'm homeless. People at my church, friends started telling me I was crazy. My friend said to me, you'll start to become like them. I remember a woman saying to me, there's the sign to our church out front. They know where we're at. And I thought, man, this is so not what Jesus teaches. I think oftentimes in the church, you don't want to look like you're, you're, you don't have it all together. So it's easy for others to look at these women in the sex industry and say, oh, them, they're broken. Until I started ministering and working with women, it wasn't until then that I realized that I was broken myself. God showed me that we were created for Him and created for others. And when I was in my career, if you will, I was living for myself. When God sees us broken, that's when real life begins. That's when He really begins to be real to us. That's when, when we're broken before Him. That's when we, when we really experience Him. We experience who He is and His love, His comfort. We become aware of Him. The Holy Spirit communicates to us and reveals things about us. She said that, that as she started working with these ladies, she realized just how broken she was. When she got, when she became, when she started working with these folks, God became real to her. When God sees us broken, that's when he really begins to be real to us. When we are broken before God, we truly experience him, and he becomes very, very real. I believe that you don't have to necessarily go through a lot of challenges. You don't have to go through the, this super hard life to be able to be broken before God. You know, in my personal life, I remember the moment that I became broken before God, and it's been, and it's been moment, multiple moments. I remember when I was uh, working as a sales manager, and, and in sales, you have to produce this, this confidence, and, and I became, a, you know, a very good salesman. I started getting a reputation of being very good and turning around stores and, and selling ten, twenty, thirty thousand dollars $30,000 diamonds. And I got this reputation, and my head started, so my ego started getting, oh, man, I'm pretty good. And I started getting a reputation. I remember going to a, a meeting out in the corporate office, and somebody saw my name badge, and they said, I've been watching you, one of the corporate guys. I was like, oh, yeah, I'm, I'm pretty styling. I'm pretty good. I'm good at this stuff. And then I remember a um, guy was pulling on my heart, and I'm in, I, I just finished Bible college, and I was starting seminary a little bit, and, and, I, and I said, you know what, Lord, I, I know that I'm not what you want me to be. I know that I was arrogant. I know that I was cocky. I knew it. I knew scripture. I knew that about being broken, but I wasn't broken myself. So I asked God. I was driving home and my and I had about an hour and a little over an hour drive home and I remember driving home and I just said, "You know what, Lord? Uh, you know, I would turn off the radio and I would just drive and and take that time and kind of just meditate on God and and I said, "You know what, God? I I need your help. I need to be broken. I need you to help me 
because I know I'm not the man you want me to be. And I asked him to discipline me. I asked him to humble me. Now I'll tell you, I'll give you a little warning. If you do that, pre-prepared, because he will humble you. But he broke me, broke me down. And, and during that time, I remember he would, he would do things like put us in financial hardships. He did things like gave us health scares. Luckily, our family is healthy and fine, but, but at the time, it was terrifying. We went through, we were living out in the country away from everybody, so we got really lonely because we didn't know our neighbors because they were a half mile away. You know, they were, they were around. We, we didn't know them. We tried to get, in, you know, we were involved in church, but couldn't make any friends. We felt very lonely. All these things happened, and it broke us. And it, and it, and it humbled us and, and got us on our knees to rely on God. It got us to be completely broken before God. Jenny and I both. God put us through hell. He really did. But I'm so grateful for it. And I don't believe you have to do that. I really don't. I do not believe that you have to go through that to experience that brokenness. I believe it's about a heart. If you really want to serve God, humble yourself before him. Ask him to do that. Ask him to humble you. So my question is this, when did Jesus become real to you? When did Jesus become real to you? There's a lot of different ways that, that Jesus could have been real or could become real to you. And maybe, you, maybe he's not real to you yet. You know, you've accepted Christ, but maybe you're, you have no idea what I'm talking about, these experiences that I'm talking about. And maybe that's true. So I encourage you, keep seeking him and say, Lord, Humble me. I want to know. I want to experience you. I want to know that you're real. And he'll do that. He will answer that door. But maybe you have experienced that. When did he become real to you? Maybe it's, maybe it's when you had to admit that you couldn't fix things. Maybe, maybe you couldn't fix the problems in the family or fix something. Or maybe, maybe you couldn't uh, no longer pretend that you were in control. You know, maybe you have a control thing and, and everything's got to be a certain way. And, and you finally got to that point where you said, you know what, I just can't do this. I have no control over my life. My life has become unmanageable. And maybe you knew that you weren't strong enough to deal with certain things and you became broken because of it. You just thought, you know what, I can't do this anymore, Lord. And I get to that point and you just say, I just can't do it. And you're broken and you became real. Or maybe, maybe you had nowhere else to turn or, or maybe you disappointed everybody you loved or, or a group of people or somebody you loved and, and, and your heart's broken because of it. And then and you go to God and you say, Lord, I need your help. I, I, I need your love during this time. We have this over at West Vaco, we have this guy that, that passed away this week. You know, I'm sure his family is wondering why. And maybe that's their point. Maybe that's the time that they have where they're, the God is, I hope that God is real for them during that time. Or maybe you have more specific things. Maybe there's a health scare. Maybe something happened to you in health and it scared the you-know-what out of you. And, and it, because of that scare, God became very real to you. Maybe you found out your spouse is having an affair or, or you're no longer in control of your addiction or, or maybe you discovered, you know, you got divorce papers in the mail or maybe your depression is just too much to handle. Maybe uh, you lost your job after 20 years. Maybe the, some major event happened to you and you're just can't do it anymore and you go to god and you say god i i i need you i really need you and our brokenness is when jesus becomes real when we come to the end of ourselves when we get to that point when we we are just so broken we just say lord i'm broken before you and he becomes real that's when, when it's, it doesn't have to be one, well, the end of me is not one time, one event. It's an ongoing process. The, the story I told you about my personal experience and brokenness happened over a few years. And then I would have some good times. And I even got to the point where I'm like, oh, I'm having good times. I can guarantee there's something bad coming around the corner. Because I, I, I started expecting it. But God started blessing. And it became real. It's an ongoing process when Jesus shows up. When you come to the end of yourself, real life begins. 
when you come to the end of yourself, real life begins. Now, it usually doesn't feel that way, though. It doesn't feel like that at all. When you come to the end of yourself, it doesn't feel like real life is happening. It doesn't feel like, like, oh, great, you know, real life is going on. Jesus is here and everything's okay. At the moment it happens, you're not feeling that. It's like saying, you know, at the, uh, at the end of your journey, now you're going to begin. When you're, when you're at the end of the road, now you're going to start your journey. It, it, to us, it doesn't make sense. That, that's backwards thinking to us. Okay, everybody knows that you start your journey at the beginning, right? You, you start and you go. But what he's saying is it's the opposite. It's when you're at the end is really when life begins. But in God's kingdom, this central pro, uh, premise that t- makes everything else work is when you become to the end of yourself, real life begins. I've said that multiple times. You have to remember that. When you come to the end of yourself, real life begins. We see it over and over again in the Gospels when we encounter, when anybody encounters Jesus, the things that, that are most important to them are put on the line. When things that are most important to them, they, Jesus challenges them and, and f- pushes them to get them ready to accept. What you, and, and they have to let go. You know, things like the, the wealthy man, you know, the wealthy guy, you know, he, he says, you've got to get rid of your, health, your wealth. And he's like, whoa, this is, I can't do that. And he walks away. Jesus always pushes the limits on this. And we see that with Mary and Martha when Lazarus died, and they were very upset. And, and all these things happened with them. And what happened? Lazarus was healed, and Jesus used that time to push into limits. And what they do? They became more real. Jesus became more real of who he was. Who, or who he is. He became more real he experienced him. We see that in Zacchaeus in Luke 19. You know, the, the encounter is that, that Zacchaeus climbs up on a sycamore tree and sees Jesus. Jesus sees him and says, you know what, I, come down here. I'm coming into your house and I'm going to come hang out with you. So after that experience, I mean, he's like, yeah, I'll go. Okay, this is great. I get to hang out with Jesus. This guy's a pretty popular guy. And we're going to come over here, and I'm going to hang out with them. So after this experience with Jesus, what's he do? See, Zacchaeus was a, a tax guy, and he was robbing people, basically doing shady deals. And he was, getting, he was very wealthy because of it. But what happened after he encountered Jesus? What happened when he met Jesus? He said, you know what? I'm paying back everybody. I'm going to give to the poor, and I'm going to give fourfold back. I'm, re- I'm repentant. I'm, I, you know what? I experienced Jesus. I'm broken. Now Jesus is real to me. Later on, Jesus, uh, God blessed Zacchaeus for his faithfulness. And according to uh, the Clement of Alexandria, uh, uh, one of our church fathers, uh, Zacchaeus later on became the bishop of Caesarea. God blessed him because of his love. Because Jesus became real to him. Now, the, the final story of this, uh, one of my favorite stories in John, and it's, over, it's overlooked a lot, but it's the woman at the well. I love this story. It, it, it really is one of my favorite stories. In John chapter 4, uh, this woman is, is basically society's outcast. This woman, uh, she's at the well, the sixth hour drawing water. Now, that's hot. So when, when going all the way up this hill from the town to draw water from this well, that's, it's, you don't do that. Usually they go in the morning and the evening because it's cooler, and they, can, and they grow in a group. But this lady's by herself. She goes up to this well on the sixth hour. She's probably shunned by all the other people, an outcast of her community. So she's alone in the middle of the day, hiding from embarrassment from everybody else. And, and, and she probably caused a lot of resentment because of the way she was living. And so she's up here by, uh, by herself in the heat of the day, collecting water for herself, embarrassed. Now, outwardly, when you see this woman, you wouldn't think anything of it. You wouldn't think, oh, there's, there's that lady. She looks terrible. I wish she'd do something with her hair. You wouldn't think anything of it. She's just a regular lady to you on the outwardly. Internally, though, she's in shame. Inwardly, it, you, you know, if you... If you meet her you wouldn't think anything but inwardly behind that mask there's a deep emptiness in her heart there's a sadness a broken heartedness she felt unlovable she probably felt unforgivable maybe even that god for forsaken her she, there was a brokenness in her you know why because of her past she had five failed marriages and she was living with a man in sin 
Now, you've got to understand that this woman had absolutely no standing in, in society. No standing whatsoever. In Jesus' day, a woman could not divorce a man. A man had to give the woman papers. Only men had that right. Therefore, when Jesus said that she had five husbands and was now living with a man in sin, the implication is that she has been personally rejected by five men. She has basically gotten married... And five different guys said, you know what? I don't want to be married to you anymore. I'm out of here. I read some, some research on marriage a few years ago, or, or divorce and, and, and separations and things like that. I was counseling some people, and, and, and I found that, you know, the, you know, the stages of grief that people go through, there's like seven stages of grief. Did you know that, that the, uh, the same emotional baggage that comes with a divorce, the same as those seven stages of grief? It's the same, you go through the same emotional stress as losing a loved one as they pass away. That's how much this is. So she's done five times. Five times. Do you think this girl's, this woman's self-esteem is kind of damaged? Do you think she probably feels pretty low about herself? She probably feels completely worthless, completely rejected. Can you imagine how she viewed herself? She felt rejected, ashamed, alone. She was going man-to-man trying to fill this void. Going man-to-man, just trying to find somebody that would just love her and care for her. Jesus can bring a calmness, a peace to our lives. And this woman had a deep longing for her life. Uh, she, she had lived a life of rejection and thought her life didn't matter. But when she met Jesus, things changed. She was already broken. When she met Jesus, things were different. When she met Jesus, her changed or her life changed. For the first time in her life, her, Jesus was real. God was real. And her life changed forever. She had a new future. She had a life worth living. What a change. You know what she did? She turned around after her experience with Jesus. She ran down to the very city, to the people that hated her and shunned her, and she was an outcast. And what did she do? She started sharing the gospel. She said, look, there's a guy up here, up in, up in the well, and he has to be the Messiah. So she went down to these very people that, that outcasted her and pointed them up to Jesus. Talk about a transformation. Jesus became real to her. Time and time again, Jesus comes face to face. We think we know about life, and he turns it upside down. Nowhere is it more clear than the Sermon on the Mount. There's something interesting about this. You know, before we get into this, the Sermon on the Mount part in, the, in chapter or in verse 3, I want to look a little bit of background. Anytime you study the Bible, anytime you want to study a verse, you always go a little bit back to kind of set the setting and figure out what's going on. So I want to read this to you. It's, it's Matthew chapter 4, verse 23 and tw- through 25. Jesus was going all over Galilee, teaching in the synagogues, preaching the good news of the kingdom, and healing every disease and every sickness among the people. Then the news about him spread around, uh, throughout Syria. So they brought to him all those who were afflicted and those suffering from various diseases and intense pain, and the demon-possessed and the epileptics and the paralytics. And they healed him, and he healed them. Great crowd, or large crowds followed him from Galilee, uh, Decapolis, Jer- uh, Jerusalem, Judea, and beyond the Jordan. This is what I want you to know. Think about this. He, Jesus is about to go up on this mountainside to preach this big sermon. This is one of the, one of the big discourses in, in the Gospels. This is a major sermon that he does. And he's about to start, but who's his audience? Are they the wealthy, powerful? No, it's the people that were broken and healing. The ones that he healed, they're following him. They were already broken. They were already looking at Jesus saying, you healed me. I've lived this life of brokenness. I've been, I'm paralyzed or I'm sick or I'm hurting or whatever is going on and all these different diseases and the demon possessed. And what does he do? He heals them and they follow. So his crowd is filled with all these people that are broken. And then he goes on. And in Matthew 5, verses 3 through 12, Jesus starts the most famous sermon and some of his most famous statements called the Beatitudes. The Beatitudes. And each one of these Beatitudes starts with this word blessing. 
This blessing, this, this word blessing is interesting because it's, it, basically what it says is it refers to those who are and or will be happy, fortunate, or as those who are to be congratulated because of God's response in their behavior. So because of the, you're, you're going to be blessed, is you're going to be happy, you're going to be fortunate, something's going to happen in your life because of your response to God. Statements give us a glimpse into some of the core values of Jesus' ministry and the way God's economy is. And they all have to do with coming to the end of yourself. They all have to do with being in the end of ourselves. You go through the Beatitudes, you boil them down, and it really is about a heart issue. It's about how we view things. It's about how we face God. The way Jesus does things in his kingdom is pretty upside down. Now the first thing, the first phrase or the first line of the Beatitudes, the first line of the sermon, is, and this is the English Standard Version, is blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Now apart from the obvious, it's, it seems like Jesus is wrong in this. I mean, blessed are the poor. I mean, that's kind of the opposite of what we look at, right? We think in our culture, we think of people as, as if, you know, if, you're, if you've got a big house and big bank account, wow, you're really blessed. When, if, if somebody says, hey, you know, wow, you got a new car, what do we say? As Christians, what do we say? We say, wow, you know, I, yeah, I really feel blessed. Don't we? Isn't that kind of a phrase that we say? Yeah, I feel blessed. Or, wow, man, you got great kids. Yeah, I feel, I feel blessed. We say this all the time. And we think that, that this, this success or, or something goes on. You know, I, 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 got, I got some blessing and what do we say we say i'm blessed but this seems so different blessed are the poor in spirit for theirs is the kingdom of heaven blessed are the poor that that almost seems upside down it seems backwards that's the beauty or uh the poor in spirit would be those who seem like they don't have anything to offer don't have any major influence and don't have anything worth noticing Poor in spirit. Poor in spirit, we, it's, it's, it's really a, about brokenness. These are the people that are stuck. People would consider them useless or helpless. That's what the poor in spirit. Poor in spirit, we don't, we don't look at that and go, oh, what, what a blessing. Wow, you're poor in spirit? Wow. Now the, the message, Eugene Peterson's translation of the message says it this way said, you're blessed when you're at the end of your rope. That's a better way of saying it. You're blessed when you're humble. You're blessed when you're at the end of your rope. With less of you, there is more of God and his rule. So when you step aside and you stop being the king of your kingdom, and you go and, you, and, you, and you're, you're at the end of your rope, you say, you know what, I can't do this anymore. That's when you become the end of me. That's when you are blessed. And that's when you're poor in spirit. That's the beauty of what Jesus does. When he calls us to the end of ourselves, he makes up the difference in himself. See, we, we think we need to be this great spiritual people. And really, God, Jesus is saying, no, nah, you need to be humble. And you've got to be on your knees. You've got to be poor in spirit. Then, and only then, can I come in and make up the difference. Only then can I do something. Only when you're humble before me can I take you and pick you up and bless you. He took what seemed to be a broken plan and he changed the whole world. If we want to come to the end of ourselves, we need to begin with him. When Jesus chose his disciples, the end of me process began. When he selected those disciples, he started with that process. And, if we, and as we follow their lives, we can see this journey as an example of what ours will look like when we become the end of ourselves. And that's when real life begins. And the first, the first trait or the first thing that we need to look at is that at the end of me is the beginning of trust. When we get to that point and the, the end of us, that's when we really start trusting God. When Jesus called the, uh, called the disciples to follow him, they, they had, they, at first they started watching him and they started learning. 
And they're listening to him. I mean, they, they went right from the beginning. When Jesus said, hey, you, come, they left. But they had a little bit of time to learn about him. They kind of watch him. And they begin to hear his teaching. And before he changed some things, before Jesus totally gave them havoc and, and changed their lives and turned them upside down, but at some point, see, when they came along and, and he would work with them and they, would, they were watching him, but at some point, what did he do? He said, you know what? You need to leave your families. You need to, you need to uh, leave your jobs. You need to just go. You need, and possibly your reputations to follow. That's how extreme that he was doing this. Now, I know that we're not called to all leave our families. I know that. That scripture doesn't tell us to leave our families. But this is what he, Jesus himself was calling these guys. And he was really calling them to be at the end of themselves. In order to do that, these the disciples had to come to the end of themselves. They had to get to a point where they're really willing to just sacrifice it all. They had to learn to completely trust Jesus. And without coming to a place at the edge of their comfort zones, they would never be able to completely trust him. They had to come to the end of them. But Jesus called them outside of that comfort zone. He, he told them to let go of pride. He told them, let, uh, you know, let go of what's familiar. Let go of what's comfortable. Let go of those relationships that are, that are keeping you from serving God. Let go of it all. And when they denied himself, themselves, they trusted Jesus and it changed their lives. When they finally got to that point where they were just completely sold out for God, it totally changed your life. And, and why do we talk about the disciples over 2,000 years later? Because of they were at the end of them, and they were sold out for Jesus. The second thing that we need is the end of me is the beginning of a new identity. As disciples follow Jesus, they continue to come to the end of themselves. And following Jesus and learning from him that they became different people altogether. See, if you experience Jesus, if you experience Jesus in your life and he's real, you are going to be changed. You're going to become a different person. You will be changed. There's no way that you can experience Jesus and not be changed. If you're the same as you were 10 years ago or 15 years ago, and you're exactly the same spiritually, then you haven't experienced Jesus. You need to experience Jesus because you cannot meet the Lord of Lords and the King of Kings without some kind of change in your life. Amen? These guys changed. When they experienced Jesus, they changed. They watched Jesus love the unloving. They, he served the unfortunate. He, he helped the helpless. And when that happened, their hearts started changing. They started changing. And they became a new identity. Second Corinthians talked about us being a, a new creature. In, five, in chapter 5, verse 17, a new creature. When we become, when we experience God, we're a new creation. And these disciples, they became new when they saw Jesus working. And, and saw what Jesus was doing was experiencing Jesus firsthand. And when they came to the end of themselves, what happened? They changed. Their identity changed. They were no longer like they were. We're going to continue looking. Uh, we're going to watch the last bit of this video. Now, this girl's name is Rachel Starr. Okay, she, like I said, she started a, a ministry called Sacred Hope, which reaches out and shows the love of Jesus to women in the sex industry. She talks about what began to happen to her as she started serving the broken. When she started serving, listen to the change and how it affected her. Let's watch this. I think oftentimes in the church, you don't want to look like you don't have it all together. So it's easy for others to look at these women in the sex industry and say, oh, them, they're broken. Until I started ministering and working with women, it wasn't until then that I realized that I was broken myself. God showed me that we were created for Him and created for others. And when I was in my career, if you will, I was living for myself. I'm in need of God's grace just as much as the prostitute that I meet Thursday night. I don't think that anybody's brokenness out there could keep them from being whole. I've seen that with women that I sit with every single day. Every single day, the women that are sexually abused and they feel like they have been shattered. 
for the rest of their lives, I've seen God make them whole again. Amen. When we come to the end of ourselves and we see the poor in spirit the way Jesus does, we begin to realize that we're poor in spirit ourselves. It changes us. changes us from the inside out. The identity of the disciples was, was beginning to change. And it changed from people being watching Jesus cared for him and, and watching Jesus do these things to actually caring for them themselves. Simon Peter, he, for Simon Peter, he literally had an end of his identity became anew when Jesus changed his name. When we went from Simon to Peter, you know what he did? Jesus basically saying, you know what? You are new. You are no longer that, that person before. That's why Jesus started calling him that. And he called him that all the time. He didn't just say, hey, I'm going to, you know, here's your new name, and then started calling him Simon again. No, he said, you know what? This is your new, this is your new identity. Here's who you are now. When Jesus officially changed Simon, Simon's name to Peter, he began calling him by that all the time, and it was the outward reflection of the change Jesus has been making in Peter all along. When God is working your life, it's gonna, you're going to have a new identity. And the last is the end of me, is the beginning of God's power. As the disciples followed Jesus and came to the end of themselves, their brokenness was on display more and more. Just reading through the Gospels, it's pretty clear that the disciples were ordinary men. They weren't, you know, scholars. I mean, Paul was a scholar. But the, the, the original 12, they weren't scholars. They're fishermen and tax collectors. They were just regular folks. They're men who, uh, the, they were men who kind of missed the point a lot of the time. How many times do we see Peter, Jesus would try to teach him something and it would just go right over his head? How many of you have felt that? Jesus, you're reading scripture and it just goes right over your head. I know I have. But still, they, as they trusted Jesus and let him give them a new identity and a new purpose, the kingdom of heaven really did begin to expand and be entrusted to the people, the broken people. It was those folks that were broken that God was blessing and using in the glorify his kingdom. Jesus called and loved just like he promised in Matthew 5. Blessed are the poor in spirit. As these guys were broken before God and poor in spirit became the end of them, that's when God started blessing them. The disciples became the people through whom the church was founded because they came to the end of themselves and the power of God became the forefront. Remember I said that when it's the end of yourselves, real life begins. When it's the end of yourselves, God starts working. So when the disciples started, became an end to themselves, God started, was the forefront. God was in front. And it was all about Jesus. And God was working through them. God prefers those who are broken. Like this lady said, Rachel, there's no amount of brokenness that's too much for God. He wants the broken. In fact, that's really the only people he chooses from. If you look through all the people he uses throughout Scripture, it's not the proud that he uses. He uses the broken. And when we give our brokenness to God, who makes things whole, amazing things will happen in and through us. Humble yourselves before God and be broken. Let's pray. Father God, thank you so much for, for this example and, and, and the people and, and, the, and like that testimony of Rachel, uh, of her brokenness before God as she, as she ministers to these ladies. It's such a powerful testimony of who she is and, and what, what you have done in her life, Lord. Father God, I ask you to, to, to make us broken. Father God, I ask you to humble each and every one of us so we can be at the end of us and you can work through us. It's all about you. So we ask you, Lord, to humble us, to discipline us, to, to correct us, to whatever it is that you need to do in our lives, we ask you to do that so we can follow you and we can glorify you. Father, thank you so much 
for loving us to the, so, uh, to the point where you're willing to discipline us, like a loving father who's willing to correct, our, correct us. So we ask you to do that, Lord. And Father God, thank you so much for the love that you bring to your people and to the broken. And Father God, we ask you to continue to work in our lives and help us grow and, and learn to rely completely on you, Lord. Completely on you. It's not about our stuff. It's not about our status. It's not about what our appearances. Help us be the end of us and we bring everything about you. Father God, thank you so much again. We ask you to continue to work in our lives and we ask you to touch the hearts of each and every person here today. In Jesus' name, amen. Now we're, we're at the time of the service where, where you know, we do an invitation and, and I say this almost every week. This is the time for you to humble yourselves before God. Because, you know, my whole message is about hum- humility. It's about being broken before God. So this is the time for you to do that. And, and, you know, the altar call is a great public opportunity for you to come and say, I'm broken. And it takes a lot of courage. I mean, if you're really broken, come. Come. Just kneel down. Nobody's going to bug you. Just kneel down as we sing. But if you're shy about it, it's okay. I'm not going to strong arm you into coming up to Sit in your chair, pray, ask God to make it the end of you. Make it about him. And the first thing you got to do is repent and just say, Lord Jesus, I'm so sorry for sinning. I'm so sorry that I haven't made you the center of my life. You created me, but yet I haven't given you the right due of what you deserve, your love. So take this time to do that. Please rise.